Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the American experience, the Walt Disney story. I found it to be a really fascinating story. Yeah, I was a little late to the table. I actually didn't get to watch it until after it had been out for a month already. I was sitting on my TiVo and I finally got around to watching it, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was four hours long and it was, you know, you kind of, through some parts you kind of sit there and go, all right, all right, but it moves along and it tells a good story about Walt Disney, the man. What I found most interesting is that this was not a Disney-controlled view of the man, Walt Disney. This was a more balanced view. In fact, you might even say that it was a slightly more negative than some of the other views you see of him, of some of the other stories you see about him. And that actually kind of intrigued me a little bit because you really only hear the rich rosiness of his history. You know some of the darker sides and some of the things that he did, but you don't always hear about all of them. You don't hear the details. And while the truth is somewhere in between, it was really interesting to kind of hear from this perspective. So a couple of highlights for me that I wanted to share with you that I thought were really kind of interesting. One of the, one of the first things that stands out to me is they were telling the story about how he really kind of was drawn to this whole Marceline, Missouri. And the Disney company has used that to their advantage, talking about Marceline and how important it was to him. And the American experience kind of twists that and turns it on its head a little bit because he was born in Chicago and he lived in Kansas City for a long period of time. And the family moved to Marceline for only a short period, um, basically a couple of years when he was a youth. So while it made a big impression on him and it helped formulate some of his thought process, he really wasn't from there. He just His family lived there for a short period of time, and it's kind of interesting how he was able to manipulate reality to say that that was where he was from, and that's what he remembered, and that was the fondest part of his, of his childhood. And I'm not saying that any of that isn't true. It's just interesting how he was kind of able to change history a little bit to draw attention to something he really wanted to share, that that was the thing that formulated him. And I found that kind of interesting because you, you think about him as the man and you go, wow, you know, he's not, he's not really from there. So he was sort of a creative person. He was kind of telling stories and making things appear the way he wanted them to, which is exactly what Walt Disney World and Disneyland are all about. He's kind of recreating reality in some way and creating this bubble, and it's sort of an illusion in a way. I just found that really interesting when I stopped and thought about it, that that's really what he was all about. Look, the guy was a, he was a dreamer, no question. Um, he had some very big dreams, some big ambitions, and he really had these, these wild ideas that he was able to bring to life. And it was, he was a really good partner with his brother. Uh, his brother Roy really was the one who grounded him. So between the two of them, they were a terrific team because Walt had the imagination and the dreams and the desires. Well, Roy kept things grounded and found ways to make things happen. I found it really interesting to hear about, you know, how Disneyland was created and how he had this idea of bubbling around in his head for years because he'd been to amusement parks and they're always dirty and dingy and you have the, the carnies there and all these other people. And 
he wanted to make something that was a little more permanent and had was clean and was neat, and he wouldn't mind taking his daughters to. Remember, this is the you know 1950s. And on top of that, there was another story that I've heard before, but it was kind of neat to hear it encapsulated in some way, was the story about how they wanted to be able to foot the bill for the Disneyland Park. And what it amounts to is that Roy and Walt had this idea for the park. And the interesting subplot here is that all of the three major networks had come to Walt Disney and asked him to do a weekly show on some topic that was sort of fantasy-related, about uh, something that was interesting. The reality was that Walt Disney was a showman. He was really good at talking up a good game, at making these stories, at telling stories, at getting people engaged in some way. So the, all of the networks had an interest in having him come in and do a weekly show where he could do that. You know, Maybe show some of his cartoons, maybe uh, talk about some topic of interest, those kinds of things. And it was really interesting because... Roy parlayed that and said, you know, we're willing to do that. We're willing to do a weekly show if you're willing to foot the bill, the initial bill for building Disneyland. Well, how interesting. CBS and NBC immediately said no, they weren't interested. But ABC was intrigued, but wasn't going to do it for just any reason. You know, they needed to see more. They needed to do more. So one of the things that, uh, the Dis- that uh, Roy Disney did was he called Walt and he said, I need a map, a drawing of what you want the park to look like. And so Walt called up his friend Herb Ryman, who was a, a local in California and who'd done, done some architectural renderings and things like that. He was a draftsman. And he asked him to, to work with him on developing a uh, drawing for the park. And so Walt and Herb sat down over a 48-hour period starting on a Friday and had the draft ready by Monday morning to fly out to uh, New York so that when Roy met with uh, ABC again, he could actually show them the plans and dreams that Walt had in mind. That's just an amazing little piece to the story. And you think about the complexity of getting someone to actually do the drawings and then having to get them to New York in the 1950s. No fax machines, you know, nothing that would get it there quickly, no internet. You had to find a way to get it there, so they had to actually put it on a plane and send it to New York. It's, it's an amazing thing. And it got there in time, and ultimately there was a lot of negotiations that happened. Uh, it didn't happen right away. It certainly was not a, an instant decision on the part of ABC to, to buy into this whole concept, but they ultimately did. And that's how Disneyland got its funding to get started. And Walt Disney started doing the uh, Wonderful World of Disney on uh, ABC every week. And it was an amazing show because Walt the Showman was up there and he was doing some things and he really was able to sell himself. And by selling himself, he was able to sell whatever he had. And he did some interesting things where he talked about development and talked about ideas and talked about dreams. Amazing. You know, just an interesting guy. If you ever go back and watch any of the Wonderful World of Disney's, especially from the early days before they had Disneyland to talk about. It's really interesting because he had some really clever ideas, and he was a good showman. He could put on a show and really talk to people and tell them something. Just amazing. And then they, they kind of went into it a little bit that they had to do a lot of editing along the way because, you know, it, it takes a while to get everything right. And because of Walt's uh, health conditions and the cough he had, they had, to do, uh, they had to work around that a little bit as well. So really kind of interesting the way he came up with, the, uh, with how Disneyland became developed and how they did some of the things that went on there. Now, there was another interesting thing that caught my attention, and this had to do with when Walt Disney grew his animation studios, and he started to build something bigger. He had started out of the uh, Hyperion Studios in California, and he decided to buy some more land further up the road, and that's where he built the Walt Disney Studios. And he had an interesting idea. He considered all of the people who worked for him as family. And so this family he built together, he decided that he was going to build housing for them right there on the Disney Studio property, so they would be able to live and work and play and be in the same place. 
So he built these apartments and he put in all kinds of services and different things. He had pools and he had gyms and he had all kinds of other things there for people to take advantage of. So when an animator would get hired, they could live right there on the property. They could work as much as they needed to, get the job done, not have a long commute home, and still be able to kind of enjoy their life a little bit with their families and being able to do some of the things that they liked. Walt tried to make it as easy as he could for people so that he could kind of promote this family atmosphere. Now, why I found this interesting was because I stopped and thought about it for a second about what that meant in context of Epcot. If you think about what he was trying to do, he was trying to bring together the greatest minds from these industrial companies. So whether it was Ford or General Motors or General Electric or uh, AT&T or whoever, all these bright minds would come together in one place and be able to group think about things. They would do their individual research, but then they could meet and talk about some of their ideas. And they could, uh, they could grow the idea and they could test them out at Disney World, right, in this, in this uh, park where they could do different things. So he could invite people in to watch them doing some of their collaborative things, and they, then he could actually see some of them. Fascinating idea. And it grows off of the concept of what he was doing in his, in his studios. Because if you think about it, what he was looking for was a place for people to live, work, and play in a larger scale environment than these couple of acres that the studios were on where he could bring in more people to come in. So this company A would be here for some period of time. Maybe they not they lose interest, they want to move on, they, they leave. Another company B could come and take their space. All the people that worked there would live there for the period of time they were working there and then could move on and do something else. So it became this sort of community of people living together, exactly like he had done for the uh, studios when he built it. And it just it hit me all of a sudden that it seems like that's exactly where he was going. At least in my mind, it makes perfect sense that that's kind of where he was headed and he was bringing it all together. And it's really kind of fascinating that he had the idea and he had the test case for it. And now it was just a matter of building it and getting the right people there. Unfortunately, Walt Disney died before the project really got off the ground. So it never really got to a point where it would make sense to actually do this and be economically viable. I think it took Walt Disney himself to go in and talk to some of these companies and bring them in. I think it would have taken that extra step to get it to actually start to come to fruition. Had he lived another, let's say, five years, it might have actually worked out in some way where it would have started to come together. It's possible anyway. But in my mind, I think that's where he was going with it. It was sort of a community of people that would live together and work toward a common goal. That just really intrigued me when I stopped to think about it. I'm like, oh, it makes so much more sense. So that was the basic nature of what I think he had in mind for Epcot. And again, it's hard to know the man. It's hard to know exactly what he had in mind, but to me it makes a lot of sense and it kind of fits in the scheme of what he was trying to do. Now there was another, uh, another point I wanted to bring up, and that was about him believing that his animators were family. I mentioned that he thought of them as very close and he, was, you know, he thought of them as family, and uh, he believed that they were all part of an extension of him. The problem was he was growing very quickly and he was working people longer hours and he was trying to meet deadlines and keep his budgets under control and do all these things to make sure that he could have his uh, production schedule. And at the same time in California, there was a growing interest in having more guilds and more unions come along that would protect workers. So in the case of Disney, he had people working, you know, 70 hours a week doing the animations. Some of the chemicals they may have used, especially in the paint departments, may have been toxic. Those types of things didn't get accounted for. And by having a union, you would be accounting for that. For a long time, Disney's animators were the ones that held out from the unions. They had no interest in it. They were part of the family. They wanted to be something more than just animators. They were part of the Walt Disney family. 
then there was one guy who came in, and he saw the, uh, the opportunity to unionize. And so he started rallying everybody around him to start to get unionized, and he got enough people around him where eventually he was able to sort of shut down the studio with a strike that he had going on in front of the studio. Walt was really frustrated by this. It really annoyed him because he treated everyone like family, and here was one person who was not treating him in the way he wanted to be treated. Walt was really frustrated, and he said and did some things perhaps he regretted in his life because he, you know, he took out a full-page ad and said, you know, this is wrong, this is my family, and those types of things. And I get that it was heartfelt, but it may have been the wrong thing to do. So the story goes on to tell us that he took a vacation after that and went away, and Roy was able to settle things with the uh, people who were on strike and, and actually had them unionize and uh, gave them better working conditions and whatever, and it all kind of worked out in the long run. But it didn't end there. The interesting thing was that Disney held a grudge. Um, and this is I've read this in different places along the way. I've seen several different biographies. I've read several different books about Walt Disney. I've, I've read a lot about him from people who knew him pretty well. And he was a complicated man. And, you know, he sometimes held a grudge against people, especially if they wronged him or he felt they wronged him in some way. So he actually was taking a list of all the people who worked for him who came back from the strike and all the people who had picketed on the line, the, the several people who were the key collaborators in the whole thing, and those are the people that he held a grudge against. So flash forward a small amount in here. Disney was nothing if not an opportunist. Disney was trying about selling his own brand. Disney was about getting his name in the news and making more recognition for himself in order to, I don't know, I, I don't really know in order to what. And, and it's hard to say why he did it. You know, we don't know the man. He was complicated, no question about it. Was he doing it because he was egomaniacal, or was he doing it because he really wanted to help someone, or was he really doing it because he really felt some, some need to do it? I don't know. But the reality was that he was out there, and he was always putting himself out there. You know, he was the great showman. He'd been on TV. He was doing this. He was doing that. And he was always out there. He'd won, he'd won Academy Awards. He'd, he'd created some great animated films. The man really, you know, he, maybe he was full of himself. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not sure. But the interesting thing was he was always out there. So along the way, you know, you heard all these rumors and stories about him being anti-Semitic and those types of things. And, and, I, and, I, and I think the reality is that he was not. He wasn't anti-Semitic. He worked with a lot of people in Hollywood. You know, as, as people would say in the 1940s and 50s, you know, there were a lot of Jews working in Hollywood. And he worked with all of them fairly well. I mean, you know, and you look at like even the Sherman brothers, who he adored as far as their work. They were raised by Jewish immigrants. So, you know, it's hard to say that he would be anti-Semitic. And he worked with a lot of people. And I, um, I know some personal stories of people who were Jewish who worked with him. So it's hard to believe that he would be anti-Semitic. Now, more likely is that he was actually just on that bubble of all the people that were there. He liked to, he liked to go with the flow. If the prevailing belief in the country was that, you know, there was a hint of anti-Semitism because it was the 1940s and the World War II and whatever, then he would go along with that flow. Didn't mean he was, he just kind of went along with what the population was doing. So it is what it is, right? And you think about it that way, and, and that's no different than most people are today. You know, you kind of, if you're in that space where you're trying to be that larger-than-life personality, you're going to go with the more populist view, just the way it is. But on the other hand... There was, a, there was a group that was founded that was trying to combat uh, communism in this country. And it was called the Committee on Un-American Affairs or something along those lines. And that committee's job was looking for communists in every closet and under every bed. There was some belief among certain people that there was a, a communist movement in Hollywood, that Hollywood was making movies that were uh, somehow indoctrinating people into communism. Okay, you know, whatever. So 
there was a number of filmmakers who joined this committee to try and help in some way. You know, some of them were fighting on the on the front of, no, we're not. Some of them were like, well, we'll help you to find them if we need to. Walt Disney found himself in that position. And he was interesting about the whole thing because he, again, it was about him being at the forefront and writing the populist view. Now, whether he believed that there were un-American activities going on in this country, who knows? But what he did was interesting. He actually went and testified before a Senate committee on uh, un-American activities. And he had a long-winded speech, and he was being Walt Disney. He was being himself. He was talking about things, right? He was, he was being very larger than life. And everybody was there and was interested in what Walt Disney had to say. The great Walt Disney is here. And I found that interesting. You know, you think about that. He sat there and he talked. And at the end of it, he decided to name a couple of names of people who were un-American. And who were the people he named? Those people who had wronged him and gone out and strike during the time that they were trying to unionize. Really interesting, isn't it? He used that political tool to his advantage to try and denigrate people who had wronged him in some way, or he felt had wronged him. I find that really interesting. You know, it makes, it makes his story that much more interesting. He's so much more complicated than anyone thinks. You, know, you really think about who he was and what he did, and you realize that he was a really interesting guy, and he had a lot more going on. One of the other interesting stories that didn't get quite as much attention and was kind of downplayed a little bit, it was another thing where Walt Disney had drawn Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And at the time, Disney was doing some contract work for Universal. And through some maneuvering and a little bit of creative theft by one of the other people who was an animator, they, Universal stole Oswald from Disney and said they owned it. And, you know, there's a little bit of creative revisionist history, I think, that happens here. But essentially, since he was working under contract for Universal at that I'm sure you could make a legal case that Universal actually, Universal actually owned Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And Walt was kind of devastated by that. So at some point, when Walt was thinking about new characters he could create, uh, one of his uh, fellow animators, uh, Ub Iwerks, had said to him, you know, you could, you could come up with another character that's similar, you know, just do the similar type of things, maybe change the ears and change the nose, and you could come up with something else. And, well, that's where Mickey Mouse came from. And uh, Mickey was the character he, he created as a result of that, and he was able to kind of draw out that, that idea, literally. So kind of interesting that Walt had that, uh, had that moment where he was able to, to come up with something better. And, oh, by the way, one of my favorite things about this, this story of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is how the story kind of ends for the Walt Disney Company. Now, at some point in time, ABC owned Monday Night Football and the flagship of all of the, all of the football games, the one game that was nationally televised every week. And they had a broadcaster on there by the name of Al Michaels in the, uh, in the latter days of ABC's Monday Night Football. When NBC got the rights to take Monday Night Football, they wanted to get Al Michaels. But Al Michaels was under contract for ABC, and ABC didn't want to let him go. So they came up with a list of things that they would each give away in order to uh, release Al Michaels from his contract and let him go to work for NBC. And among the many things that changed hands was the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit because NBC happens to be owned by Universal, which owned the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So they transferred the rights back to the Walt Disney Company, and Al Michaels moved to Sunday Night Football as a result of that. One of those funny side stories, right? Just kind of a funny thing in history that just kind of happened. They got back Oswald because of Al Michaels. They traded him, essentially. I find that kind of funny. And then the other thing was about Walt Disney and sort of the family atmosphere and how Walt Disney was as a person. If you really watch the show and you, as you sit through the, uh, the entirety of the show, you start to realize that Walt was really a hands-on kind of guy. He was, he was not the business guy. He was the dreamer, but he wanted to actually 
do things. He wanted to make them. He wanted to have them. He wanted them to be physically his. So he would do a lot of the drawings, and he would sit in on a lot of the meetings, and he would give ideas, whether other people wanted them or not, and tell people what he thought was the right answer for certain things. Kind of an interesting guy, a little different, but he could actually back it up because he could do it. And there's a great story in there that I had read about previously, about how he decided to create the Carrollwood and Pacific Railroad. He was, a, he was a train buff, no question about it. He loved trains. And he wanted to have a little miniature train that he could have and run around. He had a couple of his guys building some trains out in the back of the, the studios. And then at some point he decided he wanted to build uh, a whole train set around his yard uh, in, uh, in California. And he was going to call it the Carrollwood and Pacific Railroad. And he created the cars and he actually started building some of the uh, rail cars himself. He put down some of the tracks himself. He actually did some of the labor to actually do it. It was kind of interesting to, to stop and think about it. He dropped a lot of other things to go and work on this for several months. And it became like a full-time job for him. It was just a hobby. It was just a lark. It was just something he wanted to do. But it was interesting that he went out and he actually did it, built it with his hands and actually did it. You don't think about many people today going out and doing something like that, just kind of dropping what they're doing and, and going off and doing it. And I found that really interesting and fascinating that he was that kind of a person, that, that that's really kind of some of the things that drove him and what he was able to do. And he liked having parties at his house and having people ride on the train, kids and adults. It was big enough. It was a one-eighth scale, I think it is. Um, and it was big enough where he could have adults riding in some of the cars. And he loved it. And he loved to be out there. And he loved to be doing that. And he loved to spend time with his family and do things. And, I, and then I think there's a part that always gets lost in here. You know, we think about Walt Disney, the larger-than-life individual, the guy from the, from the wonderful world of Disney, the guy who started Disneyland and ultimately created Walt Disney World. There's so much more to him. And he was so much more interested in his family. And he really wanted his family to, to have a great life and to do things, and he wanted to be there for them. And I think that's the really amazing thing is sort of how he built things around them, and a lot of things were for them and to be with them and to do things with them. But unfortunately, you know, the work was all-consuming. The things he was doing, all his dreams and imaginations and the desires and all these things he had in mind took up all of his time. And he wound up... You know, being at the studios more than I think he ever anticipated early on. And then at some point, you know, his health was failing and he wasn't feeling good and he was putting in too much effort and he had to back off and he enjoyed spending time with his family again. And when you stop and think about there was a period of time, there was one point in time after he created Disneyland that he was invited back to Marceline. And he and Roy went there and they were like the heroes of the town and they went around and they greeted everyone as though they had come from there. And you think about that for a minute and that's who he was. That was the humbleness that came with him. He had a certain celebrity and a cachet that came with him because of who he was and the fact that he was on TV every week and he was a larger-than-life personality. But he was still just a person. And when he got really sick and he wound up going in the hospital and ultimately dying, he really didn't want to let on how bad things were because he still wanted to keep his family moving. He still wanted to have things growing and doing and he didn't want to let on too much that he was really, really sick. And it's really interesting to see how it kind of went for him. And you wonder if he'd have backed off a little bit and maybe taken a little bit easier, maybe gotten more sleep and, you know, spent more time at home and whatever periods in time, whether he might have lived longer. You don't know, certainly, but it's just interesting to stop and think about that he got so involved with things that when he got really sick, it was harder for him to pull away. It was always hard for him to pull away, but it was even harder when he got sick because I guess he saw his own mortality in there somewhere. I don't know. But really interesting. And I just I found the whole story 
The American Life, the Walt Disney story that aired on PBS to just be great. I know some people panned it and thought it was a little one-sided and maybe a little negative, but I thought it really painted a nice picture of the man, who he was. People want to put him on a pedestal and make him this great larger-than-life character. I get that. But I found it interesting to actually see through him a little bit, see what he was really like. Everyone in life is complicated. No one is exactly what they seem to be. But when you start to get into somebody like that, right, who really was larger than life, and you didn't have the social media you have today where people could follow him and track his every move and see what he was doing. You know, he would put out his cigarettes when he was around kids and women because he didn't want people to see him smoking. But when he was in his office, he'd smoke. He'd smoke like a chimney, apparently. So it's interesting how he had this, um, he created this public perception of him and who he was, and he used that as his outward personality. You know, you can learn, we can all learn a lot from that, how you have different personalities that you use in different situations. You know, I don't think any of us are always the same person 100% of the time. You, you vary a little bit based on the things you do. So there you go. Anyway, so that was my story about the, the Walt Disney story, and I thought it was really interesting. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I, you know, I'm thinking about going back and watching it again, but I think I'm going to give it a little time to sink in a little more before I go back and watch it again. I just, I, I really thought it was great. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. You know, good look into the man's life, and uh, really interesting. And I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Take a mo- take a moment, right? Take four hours and watch it. It's uh, it's really interesting. You know, most of the uh, biographies they do on that show are maximum two hours, and this one was four because it's just. He spanned this entire time from like the 1920s to 1966. So, you know, it's a long period of time where he was this personality. And uh, it's really interesting how he grew into all these different things. So there you go. That's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, even though Walt Disney didn't coin this phrase, I think it applies here. If we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 